so this morning we're going to be looking at godly leadership right here in Joshua chapter 1. This is a famous passage of the Bible. It's one of the most uplifting passages of the Bible. God says, be strong, be courageous, and, and don't be afraid. So, so what's happened here is that Moses is dead. He wasn't allowed to go into the promised land due to some sin and rebellion on his part. And, and so now he's de dead, and they've had a 30-day 30, a 30 funeral. That's how much they loved Moses and celebrated um, his ongoing to the Lord and mourned his passing. And so now the 30 days are over and it's time to move ahead into the promised land. And so Joshua was the new leader selected by the Lord, by Moses. And after 40 years of being the colonel, now he's the, the general. After all those days in the desert of being the assistant, now he's the boss and he's probably a little nervous. I, I don't know about you, but I, I myself would have some real concerns. And, and Joshua must have had those concerns because three times in this passage that, uh, that Andy just read, God says, be strong and be courageous. And, and then at the end, the people affirm it as well. So what must, what's going on must be really hard for Joshua. And, and anytime somebody says, now there's no need to be afraid, that, that to me is a signal that there's a substantial reason to, to have fear. And, you know, I think that's, that's true of all of us as we read through a passage like this, how to be strong, how to be courageous when fear is so easy and, and staying on mission is so hard. And beloved, success in the kingdom all depends on how you see the world. And so my job this morning is to help you see the world correctly, see it through the lens of the scriptures. Because you see, Moses is dead. And Joshua is the new leader. But here's the good news. Joshua knows the same God. He's on the same mission. And he's leading the same people. So all must be well. I have three points for you this morning, three things that I want to share with you about the gospel. And the first one is God's abiding promise. Now, I think this is one of the most reassuring passages in all the Bible. It's certainly challenging, as, as Joshua was reminded to be strong and courageous. But God says right off the bat, he says, now take the people and go. Receive my gift. I'm giving you this land. This is my promise, and this is yours, and take these people and go. Beloved, this is grace. This is what we mean when we talk about grace. It's God's gift to them. And, and with that, he gave him three clear promises or, or, or reassurances. And the first one he says is, everywhere you step, I will give you. Wherever you walk, it's yours just as I promised Moses. All the way from the Mediterranean on the southwest side down near the, the wilderness and Egypt, all the way in the northeast, up on the north side of Syria is the Euphrates River. And all that land in between, I'm giving to you wherever you go, wherever you step, wherever you do battle, I'm giving you this land. Now, that is incredible. That's a big chunk of land. 
And then promise number two, he says, no man shall be, be able to stand against you. Your whole life, not just in the first battle, but for his whole life, no one will be able to stand in his way in accomplishing God's mission. Now, just like Moses, he says, now that, that to me is amazing. Sh sure victory, he says. Now, that would make me feel good. Sure victory. Nobody can stand in the way. And then number three, he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. And this is the real prize, beloved. My, my friend Ford in, in Douglasville is, is on the banks of the Jordan River. He's almost 80 years old. He's had Alzheimer's for nine years. And uh, as they say in, in Sherry's hospice, he's code pink. That, that means he's going to pass this week, maybe today, maybe tomorrow. I saw him yesterday for the first time in a while. I was glad to get back from India in time to see him. And, and Ford is about to pass into the promised land. And uh, he, he loved to run, run hills. He was, in, he, was in the, he was in the military, and he's one of the nicest people I met, I've ever known, in fact. And... Uh, and he's about to pass. And what I want you to understand this morning is that reunion with his family and running the hills and the golden streets of, of heaven is not the prize. The prize is Jesus. God says, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. That, that's what he says to Joshua. And, and beloved, those are three great promises. Sure victory, God's presence. Imagine a life like that. But, but I want you to see that these are not new promises. This is the exact same thing that, that uh, God promised Abraham. This is really covenant renewal. It's 480 years later, and it's covenant renewal. That's what we do in church every week. We sing, and we hear the gospel, and we practice the sacraments. We're really renewing the covenant week by week. We're hearing from God. He's telling us his promises, and then we're reaffirming our commitment to them. So here's promise number one to Abraham. I'm going to give you the people, and I'm going to give you the land. Here it is in Genesis 13. We'll read it together. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, he said, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Uh, arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land for I will give it to you. Now, that sounds to me like the same promise. Wherever you go, I will give you that land. And then promise number two, he says, I'm going to give you the nations. Here's Genesis 22 and verse 17. He says, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, 
That's an incredible promise. It sounds the same to me. Wherever he went, there's nobody that could stand in Joshua's way. God promised to Abraham that his offspring should possess the gates of his enemies. And that means instead of being on the defense, God's people were on the offense. And they're going to be storming the gates of their enemies in holy war. And, and yet, through his offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And that's us. We, we share in that blessing because of Abraham and because of Joshua. And then here's promise number three, I will be with you. Genesis chapter 12, verses two and three. He says, I will make you a, of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you uh-oh, something happened. I will, there it is. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What those two verses really mean, it doesn't say it as clearly as you'd like maybe that God says, I will be with you, but he says, I will bless you. And that means that Abraham is going to abide under God's favor, and the favor is of his presence. And, and so... The promises to Abraham were first, and then they're coming to Joshua. What about us? Do we get these promises? Do they come forward in the New Testament? Do do we inherit the land of Israel? Well, not really, because you see, we get the whole kingdom. The kingdom is expanded. It's all fulfilled. The promises of Abraham are fulfilled in Christ, and they come to us by faith. So at the judgment, Jesus is going to say to his people, come, all the blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now that's amazing. A sure and lasting promise. Jesus says, inherit the kingdom of my father prepared for you before the foundation of the world, before you were born before little Jacob Branch was born, before his daddy Ben was born, before any of us in this room were born, we were given a sure and lasting promise that God would win his people to himself and that he would give his kingdom and that his son would arise from the dead and he would share his kingdom with us. And how do we know if that's true? Well, he's already given us his best gift, you see. The promises of God are sure because they're backed up by the fact that he has given us his most precious gift, the Lord Jesus Christ, his only son who died on a cross for our sins and rose from the dead for our salvation, our redemption, our ransom, our freedom, our inheritance. So here's what Romans 8 says. Paul says in Romans 8, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now, that's one of my favorite verses in the Bible right there. If God's given us his best gift, which is his son, doesn't that mean we get all the gifts that flow from that? And and so the Bible teaches that we've been united with Christ in his death and his resurrection and that we have been given a spirit of adoption so that we're all firstborn sons along with Jesus and we share completely in the kingdom. And what is his is ours. He gives that to us. Now, what about fear? Because this passage 
tells us not to be afraid. Well, you know, there's plenty of reasons for fear when we think about it. One of the things I love about this church and the direction your leadership has gone is how much emphasis there is here on foster children and, and adoption and adoptive families. And uh, I, I can tell you from personal experience that dealing with the foster care world and having adopted children is a world that is often full of fear. The, ki the kids themselves, the, the adoptive and the foster kids, they're, they're so unsure that it's a world of fear. They, sometimes they don't even know where they're going to live next week. They're not sure. And uh, Sherry and I have done respite care, and I remember these two little boys showed up at our house. They were 9 and 10 years old. They came for a week because they didn't have a place to go. And their adoption had failed. And so they're feeling like failures. And so we welcomed them into our home. They came with all their stuff in garbage bags. And so we went out and bought them suitcases so they'd at least have something to carry it with. But, you know, a suitcase is a sign of travel, right? It would have been maybe better if we could have, we would have bought them dressers. And then you, that, at least maybe if that dresser moves with them, they'd feel more secure. There, there's lots of reasons for fear when you're insecure and you're not sure about your future. And another thing I love about what's going on here is your generosity towards a place called Safe House. And as you're putting together your partnership with that ministry, as you're helping families that are broken and, and, and helpless, and, and there's lots of fear in those houses because there's a lack of security and lack of hope and a lack of help. And then even if you're not involved in those parts of, of life, if you have your own children, I don't know the parent that doesn't worry about their children's future and wonders how things are going to turn out, either for their uh, physical health or their emotional health, or when you're baptizing a baby, you're aware that you're responsible for their spiritual health. And, and some of you have some of you are afraid when you think about that stuff. You worry. I, I don't know. I, we had our kids, our, our first child when we were 24. I don't know if it's better to be 24 or 44. If you're 24, you're too dumb to be afraid. And, and if you're 44, you can give them everything, but you're afraid every moment that they're going to lose what you give them. Either, either way, there's no easy ride. It's a road wrought uh, with peril. Because we live in a fallen and broken world and danger awaits around every corner. And you feel that as a parent. And, and then when you're working, well, the economy is screaming now, but we're on the back end of 10 years of, of uh, recession. And, and then, of course, the final fear is death. We talk about this in our house every day because Sherry deals with it all the time. And sometimes she shares with me things that are going on with her patients while I'm in in India, and I weep on the phone because of the issues going on in a family's life. This, that's the ultimate enemy, and the ultimate fear is death. And so Romans 8, this passage we just read, the whole passage is about fear and about how as, adopted, as adopted sons, we're sharing in the suffering of Christ. And Paul in his own way is saying, be strong, be courageous, have no fear. He says, no one can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's the reason we don't have to be afraid, beloved. No one, no enemy can thwart you. No enemy can steal your salvation. Nobody can take the love of God that's on you in Christ and take it away. 
Nobody has the power. No enemy, no demon in hell, no dragon in the church, no power abuser, no politician, no tyrant, no boss, and no child can take that away from you. Those whom God loves, he says, this is called the golden chain by theologians. Those whom God calls, those whom God loves, those who he foreknew, he predestines. And those whom he predestined, he calls to himself. And those whom he's called to himself, he justifies. And those he justifies, he glorifies. So here's what the writer of Hebrews says, Hebrews 13. It's a strange verse. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? What I love about that passage is it puts real life on the road. The biggest thing we worry about once we've kind of put death apart for a while is money. Is it all going to work out? Money is the number one idol in a prosperous world. It may be your number one idol. And, and the warning about greed is all over the scriptures, about making your life matter based on how much money you earn, how much you can keep, and what you can hold on to. And, and the temptation, beloved, is to think that somehow if you have enough, you can solve your problems in your own way, that you can cast out fear. I, I love Ecclesiastes 6, where Solomon says, be careful about envy. Because there's a, a, a man who had a hundred children and he had all the money in the world, but he didn't have any love in his house. You see, we would look at a situation like that as Americans and they would be on television as people we would want to emulate. And the gospel is telling us, be, wor be careful about envy. Because that's not the gospel promise. The promise is not money that, because that doesn't solve your problems. So instead, the gospel says, don't worry about it. God never leaves us or forsakes us. And that's what matters. So God says, be strong, be courageous. You have the same God. You're on the same mission and you're part of the same people. And that takes us to the second thing I wanted to show you this morning. And that's God's continuing mission not only God's abiding promises, but God's continuing mission. Now, the structure of this story is really simple. Andy asked me if I wanted to read the whole thing, and yes, the whole thing goes together. It's all one complete story. The structure is really simple. It goes like this. God says, I'm giving you the land. Be faithful. So Joshua hears that, and he turns to the people, and he says, take the land and be faithful. And the people hear that from Joshua and they say, we'll go to the land and we'll be faithful. That's what the story's about, going to the land and being faithful. God says, success on my mission is a sure thing. Now be faithful. Now here's what the world says. The world says that success is possible. There's a lot of opportunity out there. Success is really possible if you're committed, if you take advantage of your opportunities, if you work harder than everybody else. You can take the world by storm if you want to. Now, that's not the gospel, so don't believe that when you hear it. 
And someone in the church then on the other end, maybe a Joel Osteen will say, well, God guarantees success. So brother, dream big. I mean, if we're going to be successful, let's don't be limited in our success. Whatever you want God to do, he will do for you and then some. Have faith, no limits. And at that point, I always want to gag because it sounds like we've combined a Nike commercial with the gospel. Have faith, no limits. Beloved, that's not the gospel either. That's syncretism. Here's the gospel. God says, success on God's mission is a sure thing, so be faithful. We're not going to start by worrying about whether we can get it done. We're going to be faithful to the call to mission. Don't turn to the left. Don't turn to the right. Stay on my mission. That's what the Lord says. And he tells Joshua two things. Before he promised him three, now he reminds him of two things. He says, be careful to follow the law of Moses. In other words, be Bible-centered, gospel-focused, meditated on it day and night. Now, that's serious focus to meditate on the gospel day and night. A friend of mine says, you can't love the Bible if you don't read it every day. Meditate on it day and night. That's serious focus. Number two, don't be distracted. You know, God has a lot of gifts. Be clear and be wise about what the ones are that you choose. Don't be distracted. Stay on mission. Success depends on it. Those are the two things that he reminds him about faithfulness. Now, what does it look like for Joshua to be Bible-centered? Well, the most detailed part of the law of Moses, if you read through the books of Moses, the first five books of your Bible, you'll see that the most detailed part of the law of the Moses is how to build the tabernacle and how to worship there. I mean, down to inches, cubits, centimeters. So what it describes, beloved, is a God-centered world. God's going to be at the center of this community. The most details are for how to build the tabernacle and how to worship. So in Numbers 2, it gives a detailed description of how they set up camp. It says where every tribe is supposed to be. And they set up camp in a prescribed manner. It's in a square, uh, and there's 12 tribes around it. The Levites are in the middle, and the tabernacle is in the middle of the square. That's how they set up camp. It's an image of the tabernacle itself. And, and, and when they walked out of the tent, well, their, their tents, I always ask this of my guys in India, do you remember which way their tents are oriented in that square? Are, is the door on the outside looking out so you can protect the tabernacle? Or is the door on the inside so you can look at the tabernacle? Well, God doesn't need protection the doors are on the inside. If they open the flap of their tent first thing in the morning, you know what they see every day? The glory cloud. It's hovering over the tabernacle. The sign of God's abiding presence with his people is there night and day. Cloud by day, fire by night. All they have to do is step out of their tent, glance out of their tent, and they will see it. He says, I will never leave you or forsake you. For these people, it's a God-centered world. 
And then when they march, they have detailed instructions about how to march when they move from place to place. And so the tabernacle was taken apart by the Levites, and it was carried. Now, where do you think it was carried? It's in the middle of the train because it's a God-centered world. And then the sacrifices of their worship are prescribed in detail in Leviticus 1, chapters 1 through 7. It sounds like it's very repetitive, but the first instructions are for the priests and the second instructions are for the people or vice versa. I can't ever remember. One set's for the people and one set is for the priests. And it's all prescribed very carefully because it's a God-centered world. And here's what it looks like for us. Romans 12, verse 1. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. So he spent 11 chapters describing God's grace in the gospel. And he says, here's how you respond. I appeal to you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We're made acceptable by Jesus. And then he says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Our mind is renewed by God's word. That's how we find God's will and his mission. I, I don't know that God always shares with us exactly the details of where we're supposed to live and where we're supposed to work, but I know the details of how we're supposed to live are in the book. You can't love God's word if you don't read it. That's for sure. And, and exact instructions for Joshua for holy war. So now they're supposed to take the land, and there's no question about how they're supposed to do it. When you go to Deuteronomy 20, you can read the detailed instructions for Joshua and company, how to get to the promised land, what they're supposed to do in battle, who they're supposed to engage, what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to destroy idols and idolaters, and they're supposed to depend on God to do it. And they're supposed to make no compromise with idolatry. Do not take on pagan practices. Don't take on pagan ideas, not pagan pleasures, not pagan marriages, not pagan sexual practices, not pagan views of sex and morality, not pagan gods. He says, wipe it all out and make the table clean for my people to abide. And God says the same thing in the New Testament, beloved. It just sounds a little di different. He says, make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. It's a Christ-centered life, a, a Christ-centered community. And, and, and he says, don't be distracted. Renew your mind. Practice living sacrifices. Don't follow the idols of the culture. Be transformed by God's word. Have the mind of Christ, Paul says. Wipe idolaters out with the gospel. That's what we do with the gospel. The gospel kills you. It either kills you and brings you back to life or it kills you and you go to judgment. There's no, there's no half measures there. And so we're supposed to wipe out idolatry and we do it not with politics but with the gospel. 
Tell people the good news. Beloved, there is a God who loves you so much that he gives you his most precious gift, his own son, who dies on a cross for our sins and rises from the dead for our guaranteed inheritance. We get Jesus. He is the prize. He overcomes guilt. He overcomes shame. He overcomes fear. And the mission that we're on, the same mission with Joshua, is the mission to exalt the name of Jesus in every area of your life. Beloved, you want to know what the will of God is for your life? Well, it's already in the book. A detailed pattern for living. Love your neighbor like Jesus has loved you. That's what he said. Here's my commandment. Love like I love. Be faithful. Here's how you wipe out idolatry in the name of Christ. Here's Romans 12. It's a long list. We'll buzz through this. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. I love that. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. This is a Christ-centered life. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another and do not be haughty or arrogant, but associate with the lowly. That's hard for Presbyterians. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. What an amazing thing. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's a Christ-centered life right there. If you can conquer that, you can change the world. So our message says, be strong and courageous because we have the same God. We've just found out we're on the same mission. Now, are we the same people? Are you beginning to see this, beloved, how this works out, how we're on mission with Joshua? Here's point number three, God's faithful people. Now, Israel is 12 tribes plus the Levites. And when they got to the east side of the river, uh, ready to cross and go west, they're in the plains of Moab. And when they got to get there and to reside safely, they had to face two great enemies, two great armies. And by God's power, they wiped out both. So now they're already on the east side of the Jordan. They're at peace and rest. And so back when Moses was still alive, two and a half, two and a half of the tribes say, you know what, we'll stay here. This is good enough for us. We don't need to go any farther. This is enough. We're just going to put down roots and rest here. We've already wiped out the enemy. We, geography doesn't matter to us. We don't need to cross the river. We're good right here. And you can find this back in Numbers 32. We won't read it. Moses says, now, wait a second. Your brothers fought for you, and you've received rest. Now you've got to fight for them. Fight, then rest. That's the way of the Old Testament world. Now, the Sabbath is at the beginning of the week. It's rest and then fight. 
So now Joshua reminds them of their promise toward the mission. We read that in that passage. And they, what do they say? Well, we'll do it. Whatever you say, we'll do. Whatever we promise Moses, we'll do. Now, I don't know if Joshua really believed them or not. They've been pretty fickle and complacent to this point. I'm not sure I would have believed them. Back in, back in the 2000, almost 20 years ago, I was looking for a job, and I sent a resume to a church in, in, uh, in North Alabama in Huntsville. It was an engineering community, and I figured, man, that's a really good fit. I'm an electrical engineer. This is an engineering community. We'll speak the same language. I might even do okay. And so I sent my resume in. I passed the first hurdle. They must have liked me. They called, and we did an extensive phone interview. And in that interview, I found out something really important for me. The church was 40 years old. They'd had one pastor who'd planted the church, and after 40 years, he was retiring. And so the question I was immediately asking myself is, do you want to be the guy that follows this beloved pastor? And out of retirement. And I thought, not me, brother. I'm not going here. So I was very polite, finished the interview, and I never talked to them again. I didn't want that job. Now, Joshua's got the same job here. I don't know if he wants it or not, but obviously God thinks it's hard because he says three times, be strong and courageous. And even the people say it, so they know they're nuts, right? They know this isn't easy. So I have a little diagram that I want to show you right here about what I think it means to be faithful in part. There you go. It's my own concoction. I put this together for my leadership development course that I've written for India. And, and what I want you to see is that this is your world. It consists of five realms, church, personal, family, work, and community. Your whole life is up there. And I don't know if you can see it, uh, I'm an engineer, so I see these things. There's a cross there. Do you see it? And so your whole life is abiding on the cross. The personal and the family are on the vertical. The personal is at the top in your relationship with God. The family's at the bottom in your relationship to other people. On the horizontal is your relationship with community and work. And right in the middle of the cross is the church. And, and so we are the people of the living God. And what I want you to see and learn from Joshua is that just as the Old Testament tabernacle, just as God's abiding presence was at the center of the community of the faithful, so the church is at the center of God's world for God's people. Not, I don't mean this building, though it's, it's beautiful, but it's us, beloved. We're at the center. We're called by his name. We are the we are filled with the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. We are the Spirit-driven church. We are living stones that are being built together to bring praises to God and to exalt the name of Jesus. That's who we are. And so what it means to be a faithful people and say to Joshua, yes, is to live your life like this. Now, this is hard. Because there's one of those four circles on the outside you would like for it to be in the middle. We call that idolatry. For some people, it's their involvement in the community, sports, hobbies, and the like, or, or politics even. Uh, that's important, but it shouldn't be in the middle. For, for the age-old thing for men is for work to be in the middle and to become your idol. And, and the Me Too movement, the Me Generation, and with Self Magazine that's now 50 years old and, and American prosperity, what's most often there is a personal world. 
We just replace God with uh, ourselves. And then for some of us, it's family has become the idol that goes in the middle. Those are all good things. But you see, we're a God-centered community, and the life of the people in this room are supposed to be in the center of your life. Do you know, have you thought about this, that the only relationships that last past the grave are your brothers and sisters in Christ in the church? Those are the relationships that make it past the grave. The rest of them fall away. There are no marriages in heaven. Therefore, there are no families in heaven. You know, at a funeral, and I've been to more in the last few years because of my wife's job, at a funeral, people always say, well, we'll be reunited with our family in heaven. That's what they're looking forward to. And that's what we say in West Georgia. We're going to be reunited with our families I guess, but beloved, that's not how it works. There's only one family in heaven, and you either in or you're out. And it only matters whether you're related to Christ or not. He's the big brother that we all need. So if you lose your wife or your spouse, I'm sorry, but they're not going to be special in heaven. They're just one of the crowd. We're in a family together. There's only one family in heaven at rest, at peace, with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why the church is at the center now, because it's at the center of all time. That's the people we're going to spend eternity with, is those people in the little circle in the middle. So the kingdom now in Christ is built around the church, and the Christ-centered life is building your life around the people of God. And then your life flows from the church out to your personal world, into your family world, into your community, and into your work. And then your life flows back from those things into the church. And so this is what Joshua says to the two and a half tribes right here. Be faithful to the mission. Fight for your brothers and your sisters. That's the promise you made. That's the promise you make in this church when you join the church is to fight for your brothers and your sisters. I don't know if you realize that. Now, what's the motivation I mean, they have rest already. Why should they give up rest and put on battle gear and go into the promised land? Well, the motivation is that they have temporary rest. They need lasting rest. That's the gift of the promised land is rest from your enemies, from your worries, from your fears. Beloved, that's the gift for us as well. In the kingdom is rest and peace from the world, from the flesh, from the devil, from the false kingdom of greed and empire building. Here's what Jesus says in John 16 and verse 33. He says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you're going to have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Here's the apostle Peter saying something similar in 2 Peter chapter 1. Here's the promise of God. God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Beloved, we have everything we need already to live a Christ-centered life. Through the knowledge of him who 
called us to his own glory and excellence. In Christ, God shares his glory with us, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. God's promises, God's mission are right there in those words of Peter. And then he goes on in the next six or seven verses and tells us how to be faithful and to be really committed to the promises of God that have been shared with us. And then here's the reward. It's in verse 11. Put that up, fellas. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Same God... Same promises, same mission, same people. Do you know that the more you humble yourself, this is how the kingdom works, the more you humble yourself and the less you seek your own glory, that the more God will show you of himself and his glory and share his glory with you? Isn't that amazing? Rest peace and glory, not by pursuing your own dreams and your own empire and your own vision, but, 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 but by making God's mission, God's glory, your mission, by pursuing the fame of the name of Jesus in a simple life of loving your neighbor and wiping out idolatry in your community and around the world with the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why God says to Joshua three times, be strong and courageous because you have the same God. You're on the same mission and you're leading the same people. It's so good, isn't it? But there is bad news. The bad news is, is that we're dabblers, really. Some of us anyway, maybe all of us. We're sermon tasters. Man, Presbyterians love their sermons. We're sermon tasters. In a good church, you have the sermon, and you go home and have the sermon again for lunch. In a bad church, you hear the sermon, and then you go have pastor for lunch. We're sermon tasters. We're like the two and a half tribes on the east side of the river, content for early rest while somebody else fights the battle for the mission of God. But beloved... This kingdom is an all-in proposition. There are no half measures, and there's no half rewards. It's all or nothing. It's like marriage. It's all in. It's exclusive. It's the mission of love, mutual glory. You see, the bad news is, is that rest, peace, and glory are exclusive rewards for the faithful, not the dabblers. The dabblers get distractions and idols and fear and worry. If you know the history of the book and you've read your Samuel and your Kings and your Chronicles, here's what you know. Those two and a half tribes that stayed on the east side, they're always the first to go, not into mission. They're the first to get wiped out. When the enemy comes, it happened again and again and again. Those people turn into nothing. And that's the way it is for dabblers. They fall to the enemy. It's really bad to be a dabbler and a sermon taster. But there is good news, beloved. 
It's, it's an incredible good news. Jesus says, behold, I make all things new. Jesus died on a cross for our sins, even the sin of half measures and self-glory. And he rose from the dead to give us new life, a guaranteed inheritance, real rest, true peace, lasting joy. And he gives us by his resurrection, the power to fight against idolatry and to fight against distraction and to make his mission and his glory the center of our lives. And he doesn't do that for us alone, but in a community of faithfulness. Jesus has given us everything we need for life and godliness. He has won the victory over guilt, shame, and fear. So, beloved, today I invite you I invite you to turn from yourself and to trust in Jesus. Maybe some of you for the first time to follow after one who gives himself to you and gives you all things with him. And for some of you, you're past due for repentance and turning back from dabbling to the Lord. And for many of you, it's a day of restoration to hear how good the promises of God really are. Will you do it? Turn in repentance from yourself to the mission and glory of God. Here's the promise of the scriptures. The perfect love of Jesus casts out all fear. You know what it's like to walk in the kingdom? It's like being in a tank and all the enemy has is some infantry with rubber bullets. The bullets can hurt, but they can't kill. And you're in a tank. That's what it is if you can just see the world rightly. You know, there's a great story in 2 Kings 6. Maybe you re remember it. It's, it's about the prophet Elisha, his assistant, and the king of Assyria. And the king of Syria keeps trying to attack Israel, but, but there's a spy in the camp that keeps telling his plans to the king of Israel, and he's really frustrated. And so he asks his counsel, what is up? Well, the spy, it turns out, is Jehovah. And he keeps telling Elisha about the war council going on in Syria. And then Elisha tells the king of Israel. And so they, they figure this out. And so finally, the king of Syria goes to Dothan, not Alabama, but goes to Dothan to the hometown of Elisha. And, and he goes to capture Elisha so he can stop this nonsense and invade Israel. And Elisha's assistant goes outside early in the morning and he looks around and their, their home and their village is surrounded by the Syrian army. And the, and the, and the servant runs back into the house and he's, he's afraid. And, and he says to Elisha, what are we going to do? And Elisha says, don't be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then he prays, Lord, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opens the assistant's eyes, and he looks up and he sees that the mountain is full of horses and chariots of fire surrounding the Syrian army, all there to protect God's prophet, Elijah from harm. Beloved, this is my prayer for you and has been all week 
as I've been looking at this passage, is that God will open your eyes and that together he would show us what's really true and what's truly real and what really matters. For, for you see, we have the same God and we're on the same mission and we're called to be the same faithful people. So I can boldly tell you with the gospel at my back, be strong and courageous by faith in Christ Jesus. Will you do it? I hope so. For you see that, my friends, is the glorious grace of the gospel. Let's stand for prayer. Our Father, we praise you this morning once again for bringing the good news to us, the light of the passage, the fullness of your grace, your gifts to us. All of this, Lord, you've determined to give to us, and then you give us the pleasure of being involved with you in the gaining of the promise. So we don't just sit like little children in a high chair while you feed us with a spoon. Instead, you make us warriors so that we can fight for what's good and be on mission together. We bless you for that. And we pray that you would open our eyes. That's our prayer this morning, Lord, that we would see the world and the kingdom rightly for who they are and that we would know that your promises are true because you're the, same pro you're the same God as you've always been, and that the mission you have called to us hasn't altered, that it's to exalt the name of Jesus in every sphere of life. And Lord, that you would unite us together as the same people who are committed to fight for one another no matter what. Would you do that for us, Lord, so that we might have rest and peace and lasting joy? And as you do it, Lord, We'll steal no glory. We'll give you the praise, and we'll do it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.